Welcome to the Western Bell podcast series with talks on traditional spiritual teaching and its application in the world today. The intention of the series is to offer something useful for those who are drawn to study themselves and engage practice on the spiritual path. New talks are posted twice each month. The content of the talks is for informational purposes only and not to provide any kind of counseling, medical, or professional advice. This podcast is titled Wisdom Teachings of the Ancient World, Celtic Spirituality and Tantra. The talk was given by Mary Angelon Young on February 18th, 2023, via Zoom. Angelon is a workshop leader with a background in Jungian psychology, an editor and author of As It Is, Under the Punai Tree, The Baal Tradition, Caught in the Beloved's Petticoats, Enlightened Duality with Lee Lasowick, Krishna's Heretic Lovers, The Art of Contemplation, and other books. In this talk, Angelon discusses similarities in ancient traditions, such as teachings about the meeting point between time and timelessness, three universal forces, the divinity of all things, longing as a connection to our true home, and thresholds or in-between places of power. She talks about tapping into and applying principles of Celtic and Tantric traditions in everyday life. If there is benefit in this talk for you, please consider sharing the link to it or writing a review on social media or on one of the podcast platforms. Angelon Young. So good evening, everyone. It is such a pleasure to be here with you tonight, and I'm really grateful for you spending your Saturday evening with me, sharing this time together for us as a group. I'm excited. I'm super excited about what we're going to dive into. So let's just get going. I want to begin with saying that I'm very compelled and interested and passionate about the connections between different traditions. And when I started studying the Celtic traditions more seriously, I started seeing all these connections with the Tantric traditions of India and of the Hindu traditions, especially the Shaiva Tantra, which is what I'm going to be sharing a little bit with you tonight about the Shaiva Tantra, meaning that Shiva and his consort Parvati are the main Ishta Devatas, the main deities, the main images of the divine that are worshipped in that tradition. So I want to begin with saying that tonight, this is very auspicious because tonight happens to be Mahashiva Ratri. Every month there is a Shiva Ratri, which is a special day for Shiva when Shiva is invoked and praised and oblations are offered, ghee and flowers and incense and like that. But Mahashiva Ratri only happens once a year and it's today, right now, it's happening. What that means, if we can speak in the language of myth and symbol, all of these stories are in that language, is that it's the once a year time when Shiva and Parvati finally have union. And in the myth, the gods and goddesses have been waiting for eons of time, like millions of years, for Parvati and Shiva to finally have union. It's a long story, and it's not our story tonight, but I just wanted to start with how important it is that Shiva and Parvati have union, because it means that the timeless and the world of time now have come into union. And we're going to come back to this idea, this meeting point between heaven and earth or between eternity and the creations of time. 
And this is super important for Shiva and Parvati to do this because it has everything to do with preserving the ongoing evolution of beings. And what comes from their union at the time of Mahashivaratri is that their offspring, Kartikeya, is born. And he happens to be the only God, the only divine being who can kill a certain demon, Tarka demon. And Tarka demon has been threatening all of the worlds for eons of time and literally threatening the balance of creation. So the gods and the goddesses have gotten very, very concerned about this over time and are anxiously awaiting the union of Shiva and Parvati at Mahashivaratri. So it's a very, very auspicious moment. For us to be having these considerations tonight. So I'd like to start with just a very quick invocation to Shiva and his Mahashakti Parvati. Jai Mahaparvati Ateye Harahara Jai Mahaparvati Ateye Harahara Shiva Shiva Shankara Nama Shivai Shiva Shiva Shankara Nama Shivai Jai Mahaparvati Pataye Harahara Jai Mahaparvati Pataye Harahara Shiva Shiva Shankara Nama Shivaya Shiva Shiva Shankara Nama Shivaya Om Nama Shivaya So most of our evening is going to be about the Celts, the ancient Celts, because there's still a lot of Celts knocking around. I'll just share a little bit about how I got so passionate about them. After a few decades of being really immersed and following my guru, Lee Lozowick, following his instructions to me to study and dive deep into these tantric and bhakti, the devotional traditions of India, after a few decades of that and immersing myself in it, loving it and being deeply grateful for everything that it's given to me, I started just having these longings to find out more about my own ancestral tradition for many different reasons. Those longings came up in me very organically and naturally and spontaneously. And so I started looking into it. I grew up with my grandmother singing Turalura Lura to me. Turalura Lura is an Irish lullaby. I grew up with that. So that was my maternal grandmother. Her ancestors were Irish. And my father's ancestors, his identity was very Scottish. So I've been to both Scotland and Ireland now. I've made a number of pilgrimages there. I had very, very, very strong experiences in both places, but especially in Scotland. So all of these things coalesced in me to inspire me to take a deeper dive into the ancient Celtic traditions. So much, of course, has been lost. A lot was lost. Maybe some of you know Julius Caesar, what is it, like a hundred years before Jesus of Nazareth was born. He was marching across Gaul, conquering the Celts, and crossed the channel over to the British Isles and made some forays there and tried to start conquering there, but he was not able to get very far in. And so he left and went back. But then about 150 years later, 
another wave of Roman legions came into Britain and into Britannia, they called it, Britain, which was the land of the Celts. There's lots and lots of different Celtic tribes all over Europe. Celtic traditions spanned all of Europe, as well as Scotland, Ireland, and all the British Isles. So in the process of Roman invasion, of course, a lot got lost. And what has come down to us has come through a number of different channels, but a lot of it came from those indigenous people who crossed over into Christianity, because with the Romans, and especially 200 years later and 300 years later into the current era, with the Romans came Christianity. So now the Celts started becoming Christians. The Christians were avid proselytizers, and they wanted everybody to convert. So there was a lot of conversion going on. The information that we have is because some of those very early monks wrote things down. We're talking about 500, 600 current era. That's a long time ago. But somehow some of the myths endured as well amongst the local people. And there are still people, many people now in Scotland and Ireland and in Wales who are keeping their language and their tradition alive. And so I'm happy to make a small contribution to that tonight, and I hope that you find as much inspiration in this as I have. So I'm just going to dive in now. Let's begin with an image that you might be familiar with, which is the Celtic cross. This is that synthesis between Christianity and the pagan Celts, with all of their pantheons of gods and goddesses and their fairies and their nature spirits and their deep and ancient oral tradition of poetry and song. The Celtic cross is very, very different, actually, in many ways than the traditional cross of Christianity. For one thing, it has a circle in the middle of it. There's a cross, and then there's a circle on the cross. And the circle represents eternity. And the equal-armed cross itself represents the union of spirit and matter. So, of course, that leads us back to the union of Shiva and Parvati, because Parvati is the creatrix. She is all of life. She's nature, creation, the evolution of all souls, any and all life that we experience, we experience in her and because of her. And Shiva is the beyond time, imperishable, timeless, absolute. So the Celts were on to this, of course, because all the great traditions are on to this, this reality, this meeting point between time and timelessness, between heaven and earth. The next symbol that is found everywhere in the Celtic tradition is the Trishkol. It's spelled T-R-I-S-K-O-L or Trishkalian. And basically, it's three forces flowing one into the other in a circle. The universal force of three. And this is something that we find everywhere. And it symbolizes the constant change through the phases of creation, preservation, and destruction. In the Shaiva Tantra, it's called the Trika, or the Trinity of Forces. And it's, of course, throughout the Hindu traditions and the Sanskrit traditions. It's all based on the three gunas, creation, preservation, and destruction. But now we get into a little bit deeper understanding that we can connect to in terms of our own immediate experience of life, which is that the Celts had a deep, deep relationship to the divinity that is alive in all things. 
there was no separation. There was no dualistic thinking, meaning this is God and this is not God, or this is divine and this is not divine. Only spirit is divine. Matter is not divine. That's not the way the Celts saw it. They were animists. Animism means that everything is animated. Everything is ensouled. So divinity permeates and pervades the natural world. The Celts had a profound love of nature. They worshipped on mountains, in grottos, in groves, of course. We'll come back to trees later. But the Druids, their temple was the sacred grove. At springs, at wells, on the shores of secluded lakes, on misty islands, by the seaside, on riverbanks, in caves, in crevices. And of course, if we're in the desert, anywhere in the desert, in desert canyons and in places of monsoon cascades. These are the kinds of places that the Celts worshipped. So water played a very important role for them. We worship at springs and wells. And there are many, many springs and wells in Ireland and Scotland still today where people go and they will tie a strip of cloth on the trees around the spring. And that cloth symbolizes a prayer or a wish for a blessing, a request for a blessing for a loved one. Celts were very aware of the cycles of time. They worshipped the sun and the moon and all of the planets, the movements of the planets. But in particular, they were really attuned to pattern and cycle. And like so many indigenous cultures all over the world, they were worshipping at the winter solstice, when it looks like the sun is dying, but actually it's the rebirth of the light, the darkest day of the year. They worshipped at the spring equinox, the summer solstice, the fall equinox. There were four other days that were particularly important to the Celts. Beginning at the first of the year, the first one is called Imoik, and it's February the 1st. Now it's called St. Bridget's Day. This is a day when the ewes begin to give their milk again and the baby sheep, the lambs, are born. So it's a time that presages the beginning of spring and new life, the rebirth of new life. This was all considered profoundly sacred to the Celts. They worshipped at Beltane on May the 1st, and these were fertility rites, and so the couples were running hand in hand from the big bonfires out into the fields and under the trees and making love. This was all a part of their worship, worshipping the powers of fertility and fecundity in nature. They worship at Lugnasad, which is the beginning of the harvest, August 1st. And then, of course, probably the main day and the one that has stayed with us the most and that we know from a lot of other traditions, Sawain, spelled S-A-M-H-A-I-N, Sawain. It's November the 1st. It's from October the 31st through November the 2nd. And that's the day when the veils are very, very thin and the ancestors are worshipped and the dead are remembered and honored and offerings are made. It's a very, very, very important time for them because they are honoring the cycles of birth and death. For the Celts, there wasn't really any true death because they were very clear that there's an afterlife. They believed in transmigration of the soul which is a term some of you are familiar with for reincarnation. So to the Celts, the soul travels and returns 
just like the cycles of nature, just like we can see in nature. They understood that everything returns. They had a profound faith in the afterlife. And this is something that Julius Caesar wrote in his Debello Gallico, his journals that he kept all the way through his conquest journeys through Gaul and into Britain. He said, the essential point of the Druidic doctrine is to believe in the immortality of the soul. And the Druids taught that after the death, the soul passes into other bodies. So in the Hindu tradition, there are many texts and scriptures that say you could take rebirth as a plant or an animal or a fish or who knows what could happen. But for the Celts, their understanding was that once you're in a human body, you're always in a human body. The Bhagavad Gita says, as a person sheds worn out garments and wears new ones, likewise, at the time of death, the soul casts off its worn out body and enters a new one. That which pervades the entire body, know it to be indestructible. No one can cause the destruction of the imperishable soul. So these are ancient truths that we find throughout the cultures, and the Celts were very tuned into it. One of the things that the Celts were very clear about was necessary in life was what they called soul friendships. They placed a very high value on kinship relationships, first of all. So, of course, family and close friends. You might have blood brothers and blood sisters. You might not have the same mother and father, but still have this soul kinship with that person. But specifically, this applied to a mentor or a special friend or a teacher. Over time, the soul friendship ripens and becomes more subtle and more powerful. And there is a feeling of genuine warmth, of deep respect, friendship, and intimacy between the two. This is very, very much reflected in the Shaiva Tantra and Vaishnava Tantra and devotional paths of India and all of the Indian traditions in the guru-disciple relationship. One of the things that I really love most about the Celts, in Gaelic, there's this word, Awen, A-W-E-N. And it translates really simply as inspiration. This was very important for them. They had a direct experience of what it is to be in flow with the patterns of the entire universe and cosmos and creativity and inspiration that comes from that and the imagination. One of the ways that the cycles and the patterns of nature fed into that is that those four major astrological events astronomical events, actually, the solstices and equinoxes, and then those four major calendar celebrations that had to do with seasonal changes, these acted like templates for the Celtic imagination. Because they were thinking symbolically, they had a poetic basis of mind. And truly, the poets and the bards, we're going to come to those very quickly here. In fact, I'll just talk about them right now. There were three different classes, druids, poet bards, and seers, all connected, but not quite the same. They were like professional classes of achievement or attainment or gifts. These are individuals who were highly gifted and highly skilled, and they spent years and years in study, in the oral tradition and learning. Some sources say that in the bardic colleges, they had to learn 100,000 songs. 
They had to memorize 100,000 songs that were passed along in the oral tradition to them. So their minds had just a profound capacity to remember and to store poetry and to understand the symbolic language. The Sandhya Basha, it's a Sanskrit for Twilight language. This was at the core of all of their creativity, and they were highly creative people. They had a particular love for eloquence and beauty and poetry, and they could speak in poetic verse, spontaneous poetic verse. It's very interesting that the women, the priestesses who served as the oracles at Delphi, they had to be over 50 to qualify at Delphi in ancient Greece. And when the person would go in with their question to ask the oracle, and they had to fast and bathe and go through all these things. When they finally got in to ask their question, the answer was always given in poetry. And I just love that because I deeply resonate to this amongst the ancient Celts, this love of eloquence and beauty and poetry. So there were Druids, there were poet bards, and there were seers, S-E-E-R-S, meaning they had clairvoyant capacity to see, to see beyond the veils of ordinary reality as we see it and perceive it. Some of these poet bards, they had a particular gift for storytelling. And so storytelling was always really essential to their culture. And they have a special word for storytellers, shaniki. These people had a particular eloquence of speech and capacity to mesmerize and enchant their listeners so that the story would go in deeply and do its magic and have a profound effect on the listener. The Celts had a yearning, a deep relationship to longing and yearning. They were always yearning for the unknown. And some of this showed up in wandering. Something that I find very interesting about this tradition is that there is a distinction between wandering and pilgrimage. Because a pilgrimage, which is called yatra in the Sanskrit traditions, pilgrimage is when you go on a specific journey to a specific place and you're going to offer praises and prayers and make offerings. You have to really work hard to go on a pilgrimage. Lots of times you have to walk for many, many miles. It can be dangerous up mountains, down into caves and so on. So pilgrimage is you're going to a specific holy place. But for the Celts, and especially for these seers and poet bards, and really even just the average person, this wandering was something that was really important for them. Walking even can become a spiritual path. This is something that we can tap a little tiny bit in our everyday lives. And if we're looking to this tradition and gleaning from it, what is alive about this for me in my daily life? So I have a practice of walking and it's not always easy to do. Sometimes it's just too cold lately to do it, but the more I do it, I began to tap into something very ancient about it. And it's connected to this wandering life, which I also have a strong connection with as a traveler, having traveled a lot with my teacher, Lee. And this is part of the calling that people have felt, in particular in India, the mendicant beggars, and in my own spiritual tradition, Swami Ramdas and Yogi Ram Kumar, they were both wanderers. They didn't know where they were going. They were being moved by the Spirit. They were being called wherever they were called. 
and they depended on whatever was given to them. This is an honored tradition in India for holy people and siddhas and yogis and yoginis all over India for a few thousand years, thousands, probably since the beginnings of time. This wandering, this spiritual wandering, having to have trust and faith to rely on grace, the grace of the universe. So the Celts were on to this too, and they had a special love for it. This innate longing, very connected to the mystery, because we don't really know what's going to happen. And this longing that they felt created a wanderlust in them that was further fueled by their longing. So sometimes for the Celts, they have these little boats called coracles. They're made out of hide stretched over a willow branches that are lashed together in a circle. So it's like this little circular boat, very primitive, but very effective. Someone who was called on a journey to wander would get in the little boat and just let it take them where it would. You can imagine that there were a lot of coracles, actually, that went back and forth from Ireland to Scotland and England over all those centuries. What we know today is Ireland, Scotland, and England. They had different names back in the ancient times of the Celts. But one other thing on longing, there's a beautiful word, kianalas, which means longing. And it's longing for the place of home, specifically connected to that which is beloved of the soul. It can also mean longing for something that was, an era that has passed. But that longing is ultimately connected to longing for the true home. As Lee once said to me, the only true home is the heart of God when I was having a lot of longing for home, traveling and not getting to stay at home very much. He told me this. He said, the only true home is the heart of God. But if we can stay with our longing, really stay with it and honor it and be present to it, it will take us into the mystery and it will take us into amazing places. And so the Celts understood this really well because their songs are filled with longing. If you ever listen to any of the Scottish ballads and the Irish ballads and the way the fiddle is played, I can remember being in Ireland. We had stopped because I heard a fiddle. I heard three musicians playing inside a pub and we went in to listen and it was two men and a woman. The woman was playing a fiddle and they were playing this incredible song that just transported me instantly. It just took my heart. It was just moving the strings of my heart, moving my heartstrings. This is the quality of the music because the music carries this mood of longing, pianolas. In Welsh, there's a word called hiraeth. It's a beautiful word, and it's very similar in meaning, this longing, longing for the true home. And it's actually that longing that's just like the rudder of our lives. It is the thread. Ultimately, I think it would be very unusual for anybody who's on the spiritual path to be able to say that their longing had not pulled them through their lives as like a thread woven throughout their lives. And I've certainly found that to be true for myself. So in their wanderings, one of the things that was very important in this journey of life for the ancient Celts was this understanding or a felt resonance to thresholds. 
And there's a saying amongst the Irish and the Scots, it's betwixt and between. I think it's mostly the Irish that's used this phrase. The thresholds, all in-between places have power. Here is one of those things that resonates very much with the tantric traditions in India, because the yogis and yoginis all understand and all practice this to meditate or to do practices, to sing to the rising sun, to sing at dawn and at dusk, like Savitri, the mantra to the sun, the prayer to the sun, uh, Gayatri mantra as one example, or to sing anything, or to hum even at these moments of threshold, of liminal space, when we're in between, we're in the betwixt and the between. This is a deep teaching, okay, at a really practical level. The tantrikas, the Celts, would make their prayers and their contemplations or sing their power songs or dance their dance of power or make their praises and oblations at the shore of the ocean. It's an in-between place. Not only at dawn and dusk, but at the shore where the water meets the land, the river bank. So these are always acknowledged as powerful places. So the Celts have a love of edges and boundary places and a keen sense that the other world is just there when you're in the betwixt and the between. Or maybe you're in one of the thin places, because that's another phrase, the thin places and the thick places in nature. Have you ever been out hiking or wandering and you suddenly find yourself in a special canyon or could be an arroyo? Maybe it's a dry river, but you can feel the water spirits there can feel something is present there or in certain mountains and certain rock formations these are the thin places and thick places you can't really pierce through to the other world in the thin places the veils are very thin and anything becomes possible it's a place where there's just a very very slight veil between past present and future because here again, with past, present, and future, we've got a Trishkalian, a Trishkol, a Trika, a three, the holy three. And even beyond that, this relationship with time that the Celts had of understanding the sacred nature of time, past, present, and future, and then the possibility of stepping beyond the veil into timelessness. So I'm going to stop and see if we've got any comments or questions. Today is also Ramakrishna's birthday. Mm. I myself am finding my attention going to the Western tradition as well, because I feel there's a further development of the soul and celebrating the imminence as divine as well. When I think of Sri Ramakrishna, given the tantric context of the talk, I just think of absolute transcendence, but not the richness of the earth. And so I'm being interested in your interest in this. Well, that imminence that you're talking about has drawn me to this tradition because of the certainty of the indwelling of divinity in all forms. And for me, this is the truth of life. I don't make a separation between what we call nature, and the divine. And the older I get, the more 
real this becomes for me in my breath and my blood and my bones in my direct experience of the divine in my life. So I find this so refreshing. But I also have found, because I've been studying the recognition sutras from different sources for a while now, for a few years now, and lately I've been going a little deeper into that, and I'm finding the same thing there in this Shaiva Tantra tradition, finding the same realization. The way they speak of it in that tradition is that Shiva and Shakti are the same. They are not separate. There's no separation. This is from a little book, Shaiva Devotional Songs of Kashmir. This is the same school as the recognition school of the Shaiva Tantra. I'll read you a few things. These are from the scripture. This is all about the relationship between devotion and grace. And one of the essential things that this particular realizer who wrote this poetry is saying to us is that we can attain the realization of divinity through anything and everything, through all objects that we see in the world, people, trees, plants, everything. And for me, this is essential Celtic business. (laughs) It's very much the way the Celts saw it. This starts out with saying, we praise the one who is filled with devotion, who meditates not, nor recites by the rule and yet without any effort at all, attains the splendor of Shiva. From the center of the world, let there be visible to me your magnificent jewel that dispels the depths of darkness with its radiant luster. On what sight do you not dwell? What exists that does not exist in your body? I am wearied. Therefore, let me reach you everywhere without difficulty in this little bit. Just as Devi, the goddess herself, the goddess awareness, just as Devi, your most beloved, endless pool of bliss, is inseparable from you, so may your devotion alone be inseparable from me. This is really at the core of what the Celts are trying to teach us. And here's one more. Some wander about from birth to birth, utterly restless souls. Others, Lord, move throughout the world, joyously equipoised. So I find this very beautiful. And I find it speaks really directly to my heart. And I find it a great refuge from all of the troubles and the travails of this world. Because if we look at creation and that which has been created by the goddess, and we see that it's beautiful and that it's benevolent, essentially, and that all things are recycled and returned, all things are patterned, there's a great refuge to be found there. It's very moving to hear it and almost painful because I... I'm somewhat square in wanting my object of devotion to be a divine object. And I'm very critical of objects that I don't see as divine. So what you're sharing is putting more attention on the quality of the devotion. Mm -hmm. 
Right. And so for me, the pain is sort of shutting myself off from the false splendor of life in my view of what's divine and what isn't. Actually, what we're talking about is a true non-dual perspective because we're not dividing saying this is and this is not. It's all included. Everything is included. This is so beautiful to hear what you're speaking about. A beloved aunt, she died today. She died very peacefully. What I hear you alluding to is this intersection of this thin veil where things come together very holistically and beautifully and have a spiritual connotation in the way that they manifest. So all these things converged today in her own passing. To me, what you're speaking about is very endearing for me to hear at this moment in terms of understanding on a deeper level the beauty of these seasonal life and death transitions that occur on such a frequent basis. It's actually very tender what you shared. Death is always such a powerful portal. It's an incredibly powerful experience. It is the ultimate in-between threshold. So really um, honor your process of grieving and honoring your ancestor. Now she's your ancestor Mm -hmm. in the other world. Thank you. I wish you every blessing with that. So important to grieve and to let ourselves grieve. Grief is so connected to longing. Grief has this incredible power to just break us open in ways that force us to surrender to life and to surrender to what is. It's a deeply personal journey and process that every human being goes through. Yeah. No one is left, ultimately, no one is left unscathed by what it is that death has to teach us and the alchemy of our grief and our grieving, our longing. Yeah. I appreciate your sharing. One of the most powerful betwixt and between places is when we have times of a really deep bewilderment, times when we're just waiting and waiting. And grief is like that a lot in my experience. There's been a lot of long dry spells and really deep dives into the endless well of sorrow. But those long dry spells, when it seems like nothing is happening, when we're just waiting for the turning of the wheel, we're waiting for the next sign or signal for the next doorway to open for us. And we don't know what that's going to be. The mystery of it and the really inexorable nature of the whole thing, it's out of our control. We can't control it. So that's a betwixt and between place. And those are always very rich and fraught with possibility, fraught with all kinds of alchemical bubblings that are going on deep inside us that we may not even be aware of we might just be kind of slogging along trying to get through the day and fulfill all of the responsibilities that we have and the commitments that we have but something deep is going on and so i take heart from this celtic tradition 
of the betwixt and the between and the times when I'm feeling really bewildered and I don't know what to do next. And I have to wait. For some reason, nothing's happening. I'm speaking in really broad, general brush strokes. And I think we all have a reference point for this. And the older we get, the more we have reference points for waiting and the demand, the call to surrender, the invitation to surrender, life's invitation to us. Lately, I'm in a state, a kind of paralysis from the confusion of different options. Being sort of stuck in a place of transition, well, like multitasking, where you've got so many things going on to attend to that you can't pick any and you sort of end up spinning in circles or going nowhere and just standing there. But it does occur to me that there's also a dimension to that, which is positive. I mean, there's this thing that E.J. Gold talks about the corridor of madness as a principle, this idea that in a transitory state, if there's some kind of inner process going on, the outer functionality can fall apart for a while. There's something about that breakdown. You know, they say breakdown before breakthrough, something along those lines, which I think you've been speaking to, but maybe you could say a little more about that. When you first started talking, I was thinking, oh, that sounds like overwhelm, betwixt and between, you're overwhelmed. And that can be because a lot of good things are going on too. Good meaning creative, happy about all of it, but it's too much. And then some decision has to be made. It's just too much and we can't handle it all, then nothing happens. Yeah. Just because I can do it doesn't mean that I should. You know, because of us who are idea people and creative things come all the time. Yeah, there's lots of great things we could be doing, but we really have to hone it down to what is really calling to me. What is the calling of my heart? What is fulfilling in the Hindu tradition, the four aims of life, dharma, artha, kama, and moksha. So dharma is, of course, the order, the right livelihood, right speech, right diet, all of those things. Mm -hmm being aligned to the cosmic benevolence of the whole universe. That's our dharma. Kama, passion, and what is our desire? And then artha is our wealth and our stability in our home, but also spiritual wealth and moksha, of course, is liberation. So asking the question, does this thing that I have this great idea about, this invitation I'm receiving from the world, does this fulfill or does it in some way twist or detract from these four aims of my life? My dharma, my kama, passion, my artha, and my moksha, my liberation. So the older we get, the more the liberation part comes into play. But those four aims of life are at work. They're weaving through all the time. And in my experience is Moksha doesn't just take over at some point as we get older. We're still needing to fulfill Dharma, Kama, and Artha. And the other thing of what you were saying that I'm thinking of is the whole alchemical process in alchemy. Solve et coagula. Things have to be dissolved. They have to be broken down. And they have to have a time of gestating and gathering and fermenting before they can coagulate and reform. So some of the waiting and the bewilderment is really just that stuff going on at a deep level in us. We gave a writing workshop recently. The working metaphor that we had was the wave. And we were talking about how every wave, whether it's in the quantum field 
<laughs> quantum field has waves or it's in the ocean. Every wave has a trough and a crest or peak. And when you're in the trough, there's a whole lot of sucking back and down in and gathering of forces and some churning that goes on. And then slowly it builds and it moves forward and up to a crest or a peak. And so as a working metaphor, life is like that all the time. It's constant. And this is something else that the Celts really understood, that life comes in waves. It's that cyclical, patterned nature of life. You can be pretty bewildered in the trough of the wave. Yeah, and I do see the cyclical nature of it. But when you're in the midst of it, you don't see the resolution of it. (laughs) It's supposed to be like that. Yes, it is supposed to be like that because we have to get the full experience. And it's not an intellectual process. It's the process of feeling of holy instinct and intuition. The wisdom comes to us through the intuitive stirring of the cauldron, which brings to mind this process, this awen that I was talking about. The Celts place such great importance on awen or inspiration, and it's linked to one of their goddesses, Caridwen. She has this cauldron. It's called a cauldron of plenty, and she stirs it, but it's never empty always full and is always overflowing with inspiration. And so she's one of many of the Celtic goddesses who are the patron saints, like Saraswati in the Indian tradition. They're the patron saints of poets and bards and eloquence and language and metallurgy and crafts and arts and endless, endless cascading eruptions of creativity and awan inspiration going on. When the muse has a hold of you, Ego is not in charge anymore. Let's see, a couple of other things I want to talk about with the Celts is this appreciation of ordinary life, that each moment is a blessing, no matter what's going on. Recognizing the gifts and the grace that is already present in the unfolding of our daily lives. This relationship of reverence to the sacredness of life, that God is present in everything. There's only God. Recognizing time as a reality made holy by a loving divinity. The Celts valued daily routine, the ordinary, that divinity is found in this moment right now, not at the end of time, as in many Christian teachings. It's here and now, not later or in some heaven realm. These teachings all so much echo the teachings of Leigh Loswick. I find his teachings threaded throughout all of this. His teachings specifically of enlightened duality, a favorite subject of mine. So their spirituality is characterized by gratitude and joy, which is part of the eloquence and the awan, the inspiration that they felt. They worship God in their daily work and in their ordinary chores. There's a a little saying amongst the Irish Celts, They have these three verses, these little instructions that come in three. Let me see if I can remember this from the Irish. That your hearth or your fire is your altar. That's the first thing. The second thing is that your work is your worship. And the third thing is that your service is your sacrament. So going back to the fire, the hearth, 
The hearth is your altar. So, for example, when we're cooking food, this is a sacred act. There's fire involved. Or if we're tending a fire, we're tending a duni. Millions of tantrikas over thousands of years in India tended their duni fires with such care and such great attention and focus and intention and awareness brought to that practice of tending the fire and the sacred nature of the fire. It is possible to bring that quality of attention while we chop food. Because all of that preparation of food, that's all connected to the hearth and to the digestive fires in the human body. So we can make all these wonderful connections when we hear a sacred teaching, when we hear beautiful teaching. There are so many different avenues and ways to make that our own and to make it real for us in our direct day-to-day experience. Not just some intellectual thing that's out there somewhere. It's right here, right now. And I love that so much about Celtic spirituality because it is. It's really a here and now. Daily life is full of the love of divinity. And one of the ways this showed up amongst the Celts is their love of adornment. Because the Celts rocked it. They were really out of control with their adornments. (laughs) So, for example... Many of the Celts, particularly in Scotland, they tattooed their skin with blue woad. And so they would tattoo spirals and trishkulls and different symbols on their face and on their arms and their hands. They were particularly known for going into battle, totally decked out. The men would spike their hair with lime so that it was standing up. And of course, they had lots of braids and dreadlocks. They were very fine metallurgy artists, they made beautiful bronze and gold and silver ornaments, torques and bracelets that they wore copious amounts of. They loved to adorn themselves. The checkered wools, there were very old versions of those, much simpler than what we see today in Scotland with the kilts. There are very old versions of that plaid wool, really simple, but still kind of outrageous when you can imagine going into battle, which they did a lot because they were fierce warriors, not only the men, but the women. The women were known to be really powerful warriors. And there's some beautiful, beautiful stories, true stories, like Abudica. After the Romans betrayed her, she and her husband, her husband was the king of a tribe and she the queen. And her husband was betrayed. Her husband died. Her daughters were raped. She went into battle. She gathered all of her people and other tribes together. They went to war. It's not a happy story because you can imagine how it ended. Of course, the Romans won, but it was still an incredible embodiment and expression of her courage and bravery to defend her people against an aggressive conqueror who was coming in and destroying the culture. So there were lots of women warriors as there were also women priestesses amongst the Druids, the Druidesses and poetesses and women of eloquent verse and speech. I'm going to go to love of trees. This has been one of the things that brought me back to my own ancestral roots somewhere back there with the Celts. I was talking with some friends last night. Every single one of us, we were saying that when we were children, we were climbing trees. I've written a number of memoir pieces about my childhood relationship with trees. And in particular, the magnolia tree in my grandmother's backyard in South Arkansas. I grew up in my grandmother's house till I was 13. 
I loved the trees in my grandmother's yard. The china berry trees, I love to climb those. They have these beautiful purple flowers in the springtime. The oak trees, the big, huge oak trees, the black walnut trees, the mimosa trees that bloom. Those of you who know mimosa trees, they're really heavenly. And of course, the exquisite magnolia. And so I would take refuge in the magnolia tree for all the years of my childhood. I had to be called down out of the magnolia tree. And finally, after I got to be a certain age, my grandmother would say, do not climb in that magnolia tree anymore because you're going to break the limbs on it. But it was a big, strong tree. I loved that tree. So the Celts have this amazing relationship with trees. Many of the trees were particularly held as sacred to them, but not all trees, certain trees. So they were considered to be beings with consciousness, the trees, and the trees carried wisdom and could transmit that wisdom to people, to human beings. There's this wonderful Celtic, well, it's actually not Celtic, it's a Norse myth, but they're very connected. You can separate out the Norse myths. They're very unique and contained and they're their own thing and they're wonderful, but they're connections like this amazing symbol of the world tree which we find in the Celtic tradition as well. But in the Norse myths, it's called Yggdrasil, and it's spelled Y-G-G-D-R-A-S-I-L, Yggdrasil. And Yggdrasil, it is an archetypal symbol of reality as it is, and it exists on the inner planes. And in its branches, every possible kind of creature is living. There's a pool down underneath its roots, a sacred pool that contains all the wisdom in the universes. And so Odin, who's the great god and the father of Thor, Odin decides that he needs wisdom. And so he goes and he hangs himself on Yggdrasil for nine days and nine nights. Nine is the number that's sacred to the Celts because multiple of three. Everything goes back to the sacred three, the holy three. So Odin hangs himself on Yggdrasil for nine days and nine nights, offering himself. If you like the tarot, this image of the hanged man, that's Odin all the way. Because for nine days and nine nights, he's a suspended man. He's surrendered to the tree of life. He is surrendered to creation. And what he gets is so big, he gets the runes from the tree, the runes. And so this is a gift of language that he brings back to the people. And people now have the gift of language, of poetry, of eloquence, of of everything that comes after that, all of the doors that language opens for us as human beings. So I love that myth. Now I'm going to go back to Ireland. One of the things I was amazed to see were these stones. And when you travel all these little back roads, we were down in Southern Ireland on the Dingle Peninsula. And there are all these little rutted back roads and stone walls running throughout the countryside. There's no trees. The English cut all of the trees down because if you want to subdue and enslave a culture, you go to the heart of the culture. And so the British, trained by the Romans, knew exactly what to do. They cut all the trees down. That is why there are no trees in Scotland and Ireland. Because these places were covered with forests 
the vast, huge forests of primeval Ireland and Scotland were incredible, powerful, magical. So driving around on these little roads and seeing the sea glittering in the distance, they're all silver in the sunlight, so beautiful. We would come to the crossroads and at almost every crossroad, there'd be this little stone sticking up about two feet high and it would have these interesting marks on them. And what we found out was that those are Ogham, O-G-H-A-M, Ogham. It's the language called Ogham. It's notches for vowels and lines for consonants. And each one of those in this language, in the Ogham language, each one of the alphabet, the consonants and the vowels, is a tree. So for the ancient Celts, the knowledge of language came also from the trees. Just as an aside, in this little book that I wrote during the pandemic, The Art of Contemplation, I read a lot about trees in that book. One of the things that I commented on was during the pandemic, I really got tuned in to my deep need for forest bathing. I had to be under trees at certain times and take in their emanations. It's so palpable, so fresh, and so benevolent, and so life-giving, just exuding from the trees. And so we'd just walk under the trees to take in the energies and the oxygen and the beauty and the peace and the blessing of the trees. So in Ogham, A comes from the pine tree. B comes from the birch, C comes from the hazel, D from the oak, E from the aspen, F from the alder, G, this is interesting, comes from ivy. Ivy is one of the most sacred plants of the Celtic people. So there are a few things in there that are sacred plants, but it's mostly the trees that the language came from. And I got this from Diana Beresford Kroger's book, To Speak for the Trees. There's also a beautiful documentary about her and her work. So not only did the Celts understand that their language came from the trees, wisdom came from the trees, blessing power came from the trees, medicine and food came from the trees, like life, 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 life. I love this little piece from Diana Beresford Kroger. After there have been many days, of rain and thunderclouds, and the sun finally comes out, go outside and stand like a tree and root yourself to the center of the earth through your feet and raise your hands up into the sky and your fingers reach toward the sky. And then you are dancing with the trees. And there's a specific phrase for this in the Irish Gaelic, which is Sielta na Cruin, the dance of the universe. And you experience that by aligning yourself with the trees. There's a lot more. The Celts had a strong relationship with dreams and dreaming, a great, great love of silence and solitude. And this is really found in Celtic Christianity. It's a very alive tradition of contemplative life through silence and solitude and the need for that specifically in nature. This is Joan Ravinsky's translation of the Pratya Bijnya Hrudayam, the recognition of our own heart, which is from the Shaiva Tantra. I wanted to close with this because, after all, it is Maha Shivaratri and Shiva and Parvati are having divine bliss in union at this very moment. 
So this is translated from the Sanskrit. This is from a text that's about 1400 years old, something like that. And I leave it to you to connect the dots between what we've been talking about tonight and this text. Jaw-dropping wonder in unfettered freedom. The cause of the universe is this. In the beginning, the luminous womb is. And the luminous womb willingly leaps in delight and lets herself go. Of herself, upon herself, it all comes forth. She births herself as the many who interchangeably play the roles of objects and subjects, reciprocally adapting each of the many, even in their individual forms, embodying the one, the one who condenses into mind and its objects. She confines herself by the limits of space, time, perfection, knowledge, and action. Though she is one, she is also two. She is three. She is four. She is even 35. She is earth. She is water. She is fire, air, and space. She is all the contradictory ways of seeing herself. Contracting her powers, she explores limitation, becoming ordinary, isolated individuals. Even like that, her five acts are performed as flashing forth, sparkling the world into being, enjoying its appearing, revealing herself, concealing herself, and dissolving away. But as the ordinary individual, she fools herself in the play of ignorance of her own powers. Then, by expanding inwardly in contemplation, she knows fully her own play of contraction, and realizes herself as this. Even when she is concealed by her descent into contraction, her fire partially consumes misperceptions of differentiation. On acquiring strength of vision, she recognizes the universe as her very own self. Steadily experiencing the bliss of this, she is embodied liberation, blossoming forth from her own heart, bliss, by whatever means, dissolution of thought, inner absorption, even as energies unfold outward, all flow stopped, awareness of space between end and beginning, and so on, over and over again, abiding in the echo of absorption. Her own eternally emergent self is attained. Then, entering into the perfect fullness of I am and merging with the everlasting pulsation, the blissful effulgence of being, the play of the one and the many continues in full knowingness in her timeless cycle of emanation and its absorption. Just this.